1: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and my guest is Glenn Kreider, who teaches in systematic theology here. And our topic today is the new atheism. There is a lot of buzz that goes around with regard to how some are publicly challenging the Christian faith uh, and. We have a group of writers who have been dubbed uh, – I don't know whether it's affectionately or not mm-hmm. – the Four Horsemen of the mm-hmm. Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And and so we thought uh, having a discussion about the types of things that they're saying and how Christians can think about what's being said, um, it, it was worth uh, talking about. So Glenn, I appreciate you coming in – or Dr. Crider mm-hmm. – uh, coming in, being a part of, of our of our podcast. Um, and he, he's a veteran of foreign wars. He's been with us before, so he knows the, he knows the dance. Um, let, me, let me open with this question. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the name or the moniker New Atheism. Oh. Um, is it new? And, uh, and who exactly are we talking about?
2: Yeah, the the category of atheism is not new. Yeah. There have always been atheists, um, but post nine eleven, Gary Ward gets credit for an article in in Ward in uh, Wired magazine, and uh, identifying this group as the new atheists. And he particularly had in mind back then. They self-identified four horsemen: uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher uh, Hitchens. Um, the, the The focus was on this group of of um, antagonistic to religion writers. Uh, this this group of militant atheists who began to ascend, began to, to – actually, their writing careers as atheists, and particularly addressing the problem of religion, dated post 9-11, that the events of, of that day uh, made them m- more bold in addressing the, what they see as the problem of religion, not just Christianity.
1: So – and I take it there are two elements to, to this catalyst. One would be obviously just the nature of the violence of the experience itself showing a world kind of mm-hmm. in chaos, and second, the fact that religion, in the broadest sense of the term, created the violence that we're talking about. Are those the two primary factors that, that led into this you know, new bold effort?
2: Yeah, I think there is. Those are the the two. I would add two additional factors. <laughs> there is the the fear that that day introduced into the British and American world, the Western world, mm-hmm. and to see th- uh, the events of 9/11 as acts of terrorism carried out by a major world religion, um, and that led to the the increasing fear that religious conflict would continue to escalate and it's rooted also in the history of religious conflict so we have this long history of religious conflict we have this the rise of terrorism and the fear that it that it brings and then you also have the several of these guys were were philosophers and others are scientists so they're they're dealing with the the science versus faith question. They're dealing with the reason versus faith question, mm-hmm. and you, you kind of bring those all together, and you have what what could be called a perfect storm.
1: So, so the new atheism is really about. There's a new environment that created, uh, in some sense, an open door to raise these issues, and and that's what the article in Wired uh, magazine is getting at.
2: Yeah, that there is a there's something going on in the culture at the time. You have this precipitating. Pause. And uh, there, then the rise of this movement and uh, what's fascinating is the rapid rise, not only in the, in the production of, of writing, but the rapid rise of, of attraction among uh, the American population.
1: Now let's let's talk about these four a little bit. You said they come from different backgrounds, uh, and I've got another thought floating in my head before, and I want to go ahead and go there before I ask you this question. That is, you know, the idea of religious conflict is important. I think some people forget that what led to the Enlightenment and also what led to the pursuit of religious liberty is is a reaction to. In part, the religious conflicts that had taken place and mm-hmm. devastated mm-hmm. Europe, mm-hmm. that caused people to say, "If this is where religion takes us, then the further we can move religion away from the political process, mm-hmm. the better we would be." I think that's something that Christians sometimes forget when they talk about the Enlightenment.
2: Yeah, I think you're right about that. We're also we also need to acknowledge that from the very beginning, this has been a violent world, and it's been a world in which human conflict almost always ends up in violent conflict and it's and there have always been a variety of worldviews and religious perspectives. That religious conflict is not a is not a new thing in our day, and that most of many of I might even say all of the transitions in human history are are, are rooted in those kind of questions and that kind of conflict. And,
1: and 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 in going in that direction, you're also I think if I'm hearing reading between the lines correctly, suggesting that this may not be so much about religious conflict as it is about the way humans deal with conflict as fallen creatures and they resort to violence religion becomes an excuse or a context or a pretext in some ca- cases mm. to react that way as opposed to being the substantive cause yeah i like the context and
2: pretext mm-hmm. when there are there, when there are deeply held beliefs and there are differences of opinion, and there's the attempt to deal with things being out of control, to control, to make sense of, and to to dominate. Uh, it's not surprising that religion is always part of the mix. Uh, uh, on the one hand. Uh, we could, we should acknowledge that reality, <clears throat> uh, and we, you, you can't ignore it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, how to find some way? And at periods in Christ, in, in human history, there have been. There have been opportunities for Christians and for people of other religions to live at peace. And that ought to be the the focus and the goal.
1: Okay. Uh, I didn't want to leave that because that's an important backdrop for what we're talking about. Okay, let's turn our attention to these four. You said they come from different backgrounds, Uh, they bring different kinds of expertise to their. Um, to the promotion of the views that they have, so uh, let 's go through uh, the four and and talk about what each of them brings to the mm-hmm. table.
2: And one of the things that i 've recently become that i 've actually thought more about recently is the degree to which some of the tone in the writing is rooted in the in the background and the training. That the fact that Richard Dawkins and and Dennett and and Hitchens are 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 British trained, that their way of engaging the questions, their way of of interacting, is a little bit different than the. More culturally nice way that Americans tend to to talk about issues, so that it, although it is true from our perspective, and it is true from anybody's perspective, that some of the rhetoric is is harsh and dismissive and judgmental and provocative. Christians, of course, would never engage
1: that kind. No, of it never happens camp. anywhere, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. on Facebook. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I mean, so Richard Dawkins is usually the name that people immediately think of. In his book, *The God Delusion*, from uh, 2000. 2006. Um he actually was at work at that. He's a he's a trained evolutionary biologist and an ethologist. And he, so he's writing from a scientific perspective. His basic claim is that science answers the questions, that uh, we no longer need a god of the gaps, that science has not answered all of the questions yet, but science will provide the answers to those questions. And that religion in all of its forms, he is every bit as vitriolic in his criticism of Islam and every other religion as he is Christianity. Religion for him is child abuse, it's, mm-hmm. it's cruel, it's heartless. For and, and uh, it's it's dis- it's one thing to dismiss religion it's another thing to to be so vitriolic in your criticism mm-hmm. of it uh daniel dennett daniel dennett is a, is a um, philosopher trained also at at oxford and he's dealing dealing more with philosophy of science uh he's much more um Maybe because he's a philosopher, but and he he looks like Santa Claus. He's much more uh, gentle and mm-hmm. kind in in his um, in, in his presentation, although every bit as uh, as strident in the in the beliefs that he holds. Sam Harris might be the 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 most um, accessible popularizer mm-hmm. of the group. Uh, Harris is, uh, has a degree in philosophy, too, from Stanford, a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. But he but he writes his The End of Faith, A Letter to a Christian Nation, The End of Faith, which was published in 2004, which he started writing September 12, 2001, mm-hmm. that watching what happened on 9-11 led him to say this is an issue that needs a response and needs to be addressed. And so for for him, Christianity and all religion is uh, is a problem and is, is a danger. Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, died in 2011 as a journalist and a literary critic. He is not trained in science or in philosophy, and he is the most strident. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his book, God Is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, uh, took a great deal of uh, pleasure um, in criticizing Jerry Falwell uh, and and then celebrated Falwell's death when he was on a speaking tour hmm. uh, for that book, uh, has called uh, Mother Teresa a Fraud and uh, it, it, he he really is he makes Dawkins <laughs> look like a like a nice uh, like a nice guy hmm. uh, but, uh, tragically. Uh, is no longer with us
1: now, when we talk about the philosophical roots of this, of course, as you 've mentioned, atheism has been with us a long time, although there 's some ironies with regard to mm-hmm. atheism. I have to throw this in because you know Christians were called atheists in the in the early in the mm-hmm. early period because they didn 't believe in all the gods mm-hmm. of the greco roman world so mm-hmm. it 's an interesting term in that regard. And
2: Dawkins actually plays off that, and he says that that uh, that Throughout human history, people have not believed in certain gods. We just believe in one less.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so in the background, when we speak philosophically, I think the big name whose shadow ca- is cast over the modern discussion of atheism—whether he connects to these guys or not—as a matter mm-hmm. of discussion, of course, is Nietzsche. So, um, how does he? How does he or does he fit into what's going on now? And, to, and, and now to take a twist on our original question, how new is the atheism that we're dealing with, or is it a collection of arguments that actually have been with us a long time?
2: Um Nietzsche's, Nietzsche and the other um, non-theists of the Enlightenment era as, uh, as the, the shift from metaphysics leading to epistemology f- completely flips mm-hmm. to uh, how do we know becoming more important than what is real. We shift from faith seeking understanding to understanding seeking faith. Mm-hmm. The end of, result becomes. That something that cannot be verified, can be tested, can be demonstrated, for which there is not hard scientific evidence, would need to be questioned and could be ultimately dismissed. That leads Nietzsche to a real crisis um, because he realizes the implications of the worldview. He realizes the implications of what he's believing, but he realizes that life as a complete nihilist is destructive and Mm -hmm. simply doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so there is a real sense of tragedy and sadness in Nietzsche that God is dead, that we've killed him, look what you've done to God, Mm -hmm. and now we're stuck in In the aftermath of this great murder, that that sadness, that um, that disappointment, that sobriety, if you will, is 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 not found to, at least not to the same degree in the new atheists. If I may summarize the at least these four. The new atheists say there is no god, there never has been. This is good for us, and let's let's celebrate the the freedom. Let's let's look forward to the day when we don't have to wrestle with these questions anymore. It was interesting to watch the the television interview where they were dubbed the four atheists and hear them talking among themselves about whether religion ever produces anything good, hmm. whether there's any value in, in any religion anywhere and at any time. And they, they pretty, pretty much divided two to two, hmm. uh, that there is, there is nothing in any religion anywhere um, Hitchens and Dawkins—that's uh, not found also outside of religion. So we don't need religion at all. Uh, Harris is much more willing to affirm that there are certain benefits of, of religion, uh, but but it's no—it's not necessary. We don't need it, I and mean, that's a, that's a, a major shift. The second major shift, it seems to me, is the the scientific revolution and the the perception. That uh, the the real the really the arrogance of the scientific community that. That, that religion is no longer necessary, God is no longer necessary, because the answers to all the fundamental questions, where do we come from, why are we here, where are we going, what difference does it make, are all questions that, that science can provide the answers to. And so
1: Now we're talking about some in the scientific community, because there are scientists right. who are absolutely committed to a, a, a theistic approach to yeah. life and who acknowledge exactly. that science doesn't answer all the questions that are put forward about you know where we come yeah. from and who we are.
2: Yeah, there are atheistic scientists. There are non-atheistic scientists. Uh, we're, we're talking here about this this movement and this group of um, of scientists, this group of, of philosophers, this group. And we, and it would be a subject for another day. It's beyond my expertise to talk about the quality of the science, even to talk about the quality of the philosophy mm-hmm. of, of these four guys. Mm-hmm.
1: In fact, we did an earlier podcast with you and Doug Blunt, who's more trained in philosophy, right. in which he talked about many of the philosophical elements that are behind this an- another thing that I'm that I'm hearing you say is is that Nietzsche seemed to have an awareness and even an empathy for what was lost yeah, in right. a death of God of you that the modern group lacks right
2: yeah that the, here is well actually I want to say two things here uh, that for these four particularly, there is there 's a celebration of there's there's no there 's no concern there 's no sense that we 've lost something there 's a celebration of that we there still are Nietzschean uh, atheists in the world today, and I think it is important that a great deal of attention is devoted, which is partly because of the p r machine right there 's a great deal of attention devoted to these four now three and several others. Um, who are who are writing today in the same in the same vein, but there's another whole category of atheists that, as somebody uh, commented after our last uh, mm-hmm. podcast that, that one of the criticisms he leveled at us he said, you, you guys did a really nice job talking about those four guys right, right. but they all die, they all convert to Christianity tomorrow. the problem doesn 't go away mm-hmm. that there are a lot of atheists who 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 are sharing the ethos of the four horsemen, but then there are a lot of others who are who are much much more sober minded much sadder about the about the um, the uh, losing faith in the possibility. More of truly Nietzschean of in many ways. More truly Nietzschean, in it is the fastest growing group in a, in an American religious demographic. The the so called nuns, right? And that number is is growing incredibly quickly from mm-hmm. um, uh, from two thousand. To ten to to, or to from from nineteen ninety to to, to two thousand and ten, the numbers have doubled mm-hmm. and probably are, are expanding much more. If you if you ask people um, their religious affiliation, about six percent will identify themselves as atheists or agnostics, and we're well over twenty percent would identify themselves as having no religious affiliation at all. And mm-hmm. many of them are not militant atheists. Many of them are are sad, and for whatever reason, which is the third category, mm-hmm. um, that, that many of them come from former theists, they so, come from Christians. So these, non- affili- Christians.
1: these non-affiliated religious people—it's a group that's growing. Um, when we say nuns, you know, some people may misunderstand yeah, right. what we're talking about. Um, Duns but, and nuns, but it's D O N E S and N O N E S. Yeah, there you go. So um, uh, this actually is a group that's expanding, particularly among millennial, right. uh, among the millennial age group, and uh, it's uh, it, it's actually been a topic of several podcasts in one way or. Another that we've done to talk about how do you minister to this group whose whose response to culture is it, it it almost draws out on demographic lines. I mean that there seems to be an age breakdown in which in which. This younger group is responding in ways that are different from the older groups mm-hmm. that came before them. Yeah,
2: I've been reading recently uh, on a different, on another category, mm-hmm. which is well worth maybe another conversation: mm-hmm. uh, the rise of the Duns. Mm-hmm. This group is not. Millennial. Mm-hmm. This group is across the board, mm-hmm. and that some of the, the some of the um, stories that Packard tells in in his book, The Rise of the, the Duns, is, is these are people who have uh, who are in their seventies and eighties who have been who are walking away from the church, not walking away from the faith, mm-hmm. but walking away from the church. And, and I wonder what that looks like in the future. That it's mm-hmm. one step away from the church. Mm-hmm. It's an, it, it's a very small step from there to uh, to not identifying as a as a person of faith at all. Well, but, and you know that's and I think that's important for under for laying the groundwork. To understand that the phenomenon we're talking about is not merely limited to the four horsemen and their followers, right. that their 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 approach is very distinctive, it's very belligerent. They're the people who get the press. Mm-hmm. There's a, I mean, part of the rise of of this is because it has become more socially acceptable, more popular because there is uh, they. They have, they have platforms and publishing, and uh, so that uh, some of that phenomenon is a is a is a cultural phenomenon.
1: So we've got we've got the new atheism, but then we've got a much bigger issue related to atheism at large, and in some cases, what you might call an agnosticism, or even a dialing down of the mm-hmm. of, of one's spiritual commitment. I mean, we're really dealing with a huge spectrum here. We are, we are. yeah,
2: and I I, I think the 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 key, the key issue here for christians is how do we respond and the we the way we respond must be distinctly christian the way we respond m- must be a bit different if, than if you're talking to somebody who has read dawkins and has bought into his argument that response would be different than to a person who is struggling with the faith a person who wants to believe a person who did believe mm-hmm. and that those are those are two different approaches and there really is a continuum.
1: There. Yeah, and I this is crucial cuz when I talk about cultural engagement I talk about getting a spiritual GPS on the person you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of that exercise is to listen to how they process religious discussion because that spectrum exists and depending on where they are on the spectrum there are different needs and 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 responses that you need to give so mm-hmm. you can't you can't do a one size fits all engagement? Right. We
2: we really never could. Mm-hmm. But in an, in an increasingly pluralistic world, uh, it becomes increasingly important that we know what the issues are to with with the person we're we're speaking to. That oftentimes. Because in, in in a modern world, we were taught to have all the answers and mm-hmm. to proclaim. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to do a lot more listening and to understand what is distinctive about this person, this person I care about, or this person I now I just meet at Starbucks or somewhere. Right, and uh, so that I have this conversation about the gospel. Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith. Hope and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. 9 Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. 9 Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com/audio to learn more. And now I kind of want to
1: flip the flip the conversation rather than talking about individuals and where they come from and what their background is and why they've been influenced in the direction that they have. I want to turn to this question and that is what kinds of arguments do uh, atheists in general and perhaps new atheists in particular use that that res seem to resonate with the public and what are Kind of some of the ways into interacting with them, and Glenn, you told me at the break that we you have five of these. So let's go through them one at a time. I actually have a longer list that I've boiled down to five. Okay, well that's that's nice to know. We can we can do something with the rest of that at some other point. And
2: well, maybe I'll incorporate the five that that I'm calling these five problems. Okay, Um, and and they're really it are in no particular order except the first one, okay. that I think the world radically has radically changed, the, the, at least American perception of the world, radically changed in 9-11. Mm-hmm. And there is it's the problem of evil mm-hmm. and particularly the problem of, of fear mm-hmm. that um, in a post-9-11 world and in a world of threats of terrorism. Um, People are afraid, Mm -hmm. and uh, and I think that one of the key issues here is, and it leads me to to the second problem. It's the problem of religion, and as we talked earlier, that throughout human history, wars have often been religious wars, and in every war. Um, there 's been a in almost every war there 's been the perception that that god 's on my side god 's on on our side and, and what what seems to have happened in recent memory is that there is an increasing awareness of the conflict between a militant religion and then the fear of conflict with another militant religion or the conflict between militant religion and the state or the conflict between militant religion and science and the those that it creates a a culture of of fear uh, where it becomes really a challenge for christianity is that that our faith in christ doesn't really solve the problem of that conflict, and it doesn't solve the problem of fear. We, we live in a scary world, and it's easy for us to, re- to, to step back and remind ourselves that, uh, that the world has always been a scary place. There has always been uh, sin and death and conflict, uh, but it really doesn't address the, the issues that are particularly facing us at, at the present time.
1: Yeah, I mean, the is, amount of violence that one is able to do is so escalated is exactly, and so wide.
2: That's exactly right. It mm. is the, 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 um, the ability to kill a greater number of people with uh, – In and a, a, shorter and a shorter amount, amount of time. Of time. Right. Yep yeah and, and and that that fear is an appropriate fear mm-hmm. that concern is an appropriate concern that uh, what over and over again all four of the four horsemen uh, their their strongest arguments are addressed toward Islam, not mm-hmm. towards uh, Christianity uh, but they're but they are concerned about Christianity and other religions for for exactly the same re- reason so the the problem of evil and you might say but so how does that lead to atheism, well, it's, that's that fundamental theological problem that people of faith have been wrestling with ever since the Garden. You know, how, how can there be this horrific evil? this random, unexpected evil, and of degrees, levels of kind that has not been seen in human history until our day. How can that exist in a world where God is good? If if God is good, then why is there evil? If God is good, how can there be this kind of evil? And uh, if God is good and has the power ability to do something, why doesn't God respond? Why, why doesn't God do something? And it's a very small step from those questions to say, since God isn't responding since god isn't reacting since god isn't fixing this and i, I know mm-hmm. that that headline mm-hmm. w- introduced an article that argued a different point
1: that's exactly right but the
2: headline it was just daily news right right uh, right why, why the,
1: isn't god fixing this the
2: headline is i mean the headline yeah. is true god yeah. god isn't fixing yeah. this.
1: yeah yeah
2: yet mm-hmm. and uh, to live in a world where God, who is good, who has power, allows evil, but that God doesn't immediately step in and, and uh, respond to it, has led a lot of people to say. So when the new, a lot of people to say, I don't need God. So the, when the new atheists um, repeat that that same old message, that even if there is a God, He's not active in the world. So what good is He? We have to take care of ourselves. Yeah, I don't need
1: ourselves. that kind of a God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. and then
2: you add to that mm-hmm. problem number three. Mm -hmm. is the problem of the Bible Mm -hmm. and the God who is revealed in the Bible. The the atheists, the new atheists, particularly love to call attention to the biblical stories where God destroys all human life on the earth in the flood, mm-hmm. where God condemns the uh, Canaanites, uh, the, the genocide, uh, where God uh, sends judgment and the ground swallows up the Israelites, mm-hmm. where where a prophet calls for bears to mm-hmm. maul. Little boy
1: anything that suggests accountability to a creator yeah yeah
2: uh, yeah and that, uh, that uh, and I think in those but then you need to add to that right in a postmodern world in a world where there's sensitivity mm-hmm. to the marginalized, to mm-hmm. the other, so questions about the way the Bible treats women, mm-hmm. the way uh, homosexuals are uh, are treated in in the Scripture, the way the Church has throughout her history, there is this this um, this sensitivity to the issue, and the question uh, about about the way the church has, the way Christianity's book has, has treated these peoples and the way the church has used the Bible to oppress and to condemn. And on this issue, quite frankly, I think it requires a great deal of honesty and humility Mm -hmm. on on our part. As I think you've heard me say before, we we can't ignore that those texts are in the scripture. Mm -hmm. We we can't say uh, that this story didn't didn't exist, it didn't happen. It, It did. But I think there are... There are ways to as you mentioned uh, accountability to a holy god mm-hmm. or uh, god's uh, god's long suffering his patience, and that the destruction of uh, his judgment of the Israelites follows year after year after year after year of warning and calls to repentance and that that that's that part of the story has to be told too mm-hmm. not in any way to to minimize the horror of some of these stories, I mean the the horror of. Um uh, of a disobedient child must be taken out and stoned. And mm-hmm. that, that Israel that there's little evidence that the Israelites ever carried that out. Mm-hmm. M- maybe demonstrates the the horror of it. And there the are really deep seated hermeneutical questions here mm-hmm. that uh, that we need to talk about. And I think we need to have those conversations In, instead of immediately jumping to a defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Immediately jumping to. A condemnation of the questioner. Uh, that actually to, to sit down and have conversations about appreciate about how to the do
1: sincerity of what's being raised and and, mm, en- right. and engage it. Yes, I I think that's a very very uh, important point. You know, we did a podcast uh, a while ago on on genocide in the Old Testament. The the experience of uh, of God telling. Israel to go in and wipe out everyone in the land, which Israel failed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Thankfully, yes, there would be no Jesus. (laughs) And and so, in the midst of in the midst of that, um, uh, explaining how when you read the story in the Torah about the nature of the civilization that was being judged because it's part that's that's actually a part of the story mm-hmm. it isn't just it isn't just kind of random killing if I can say it that way mm-hmm. um, and not that that solves everything right. but it does it does bring in other factors that people have to think about when you think about the revulsion that people feel today about the kind of violence that we're seeing and the human instinct to say that needs to be completely gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. That's no different in many ways. Yeah. That, that that is a, that is a statement about an evil so deep and so poisonous and mm-hmm. so destructive that it needs to be eradicated. Right. Yeah. Um, and those instincts are not necessarily bad instincts. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's a real th- discussion to be had.
2: Yeah, and that conversation has to be had also with the awareness that Christianity has a tendency toward Marcionism Mm -hmm. that dismisses the Old Testament, at least implicitly, Mm -hmm. as a different era, a different dispensation, a different God. And as a dispensationalist, we do recognize it's a different dispensation. Mm -hmm. But the the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the same God, and that this angry God of the Old Testament who destroys people. And this loving, gentle Jesus of the New Testament uh, interpretation has to be has to be done away. It runs
1: into trouble in the Book of Revelation,
2: and it runs into trouble in the Pentateuch mm-hmm. and um, and throughout the history of Israel, because mm-hmm. the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, mm-hmm. abounding in love and faithfulness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Right, but He is abounding in love and faithfulness and mercy and grace, and that that part of the story. I th- I it's not it's it, it's it's not simply a counterbalance to the story of of the t- destruction of the Canaanites but it is part of that story and I interrupted you a bit mm-hmm. earlier to to make the point that you know if the Israelites had wiped out all the Canaanites mm-hmm. there would be no Rahab and there would be no Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I mean it's a that god's grace even in the midst of his judgment emerges
1: important. out of the out of the irony of something that looks to be completely destructive and negative just like the cross right. i mean the cross looks to be something completely destructive and negative and yet look what emerges out of yeah. it out of out of out of evil god is able yeah. to have something good emerge because life always conquers death mm-hmm. that
2: resurrection is the good news that that comes out of that
1: Yeah, and the other half of this equation that we haven't talked very much about, I've got got two themes that I want to raise from what you've said. I'm trying to decide what order to take them in.
2: We have talked about the problem of science, so I've got four of them.
1: Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, But one of the issues it seems to me that we're dealing with is when we talk about religion, particularly when religion is being used generically. Um, so we're not just talking about Christianity, we're also talking about how people view Judaism or or Islam or Buddhism or whatever. Uh, I, I think it's important to say that uh, one of the one of the issues that we're falling into today it's not an atheism issue it's a religion issue sociology mm-hmm. religion issue is is the danger of generalizing right. where where we say all christians x or all jews x or all muslims x whatever that thing is and in fact what you see within these religions is a gradation mm-hmm. in which there are people who are as repulsed by what is going on in our world today in the name of religion, as um, as others of other religions are, and and with with equal passion, and in some cases, with an intensity that reflects the fact that it's that it's their religion that's being besmirched by what's being done.
2: Yeah, the the tendency to view religions and peoples monolithically. Uh, there are people who represent Christianity that uh, we would wish they would not Mm -hmm. uh, and that we would be all lumped in together with them uh, ought to give us great pause before we lump all Muslims in with radical Islam and we lump all atheists together with Richard Dawkins and and Christopher Hitchens. there there is a uh, there really is a, a a continuum of of perspectives and views but but the other issue that that raises for me is that we are increasingly living in a world where you have to be incredibly naive to believe in pluralism. Mm-hmm. To believe that every religion is has the same agenda, that every every religion believes the same thing, and that that we could all we somehow we can all just get along when every world religion claims and in fact if we add atheism into mm-hmm. the mix as a as a religious. It's a world system, view. It is a world view. Yeah. Uh, each one claims to be exclusive and mm-hmm. claims to be the the right one, mm-hmm. and that that's, that somehow out of this it seems to me comes the the recognition, the reality of the of the, re, uh, uh, the of the naivete of of much of the interreligious dialogue that had been going on prior to prior to this time
1: now the other dimension that i want to bring into the equation because we haven't talked about it is is in the midst of recognizing that there's all kinds of violence and that violent responses are oftentimes very human in the midst of conflict is this strand in christianity that is that i will Say is countercultural. It is the element that says that, uh, you know, when you think about Jesus, you think about him as being an apostle of peace, Mm. an apostle to some degree of nonviolence. You know, when you think about what makes the sermon on the mount particularly distinctive what makes it particularly distinctive is not that he exhorted people you know to distinguish the world between those who are righteous and those who are sinners and to treat the righteous one mm-hmm. way and sinners another mm-hmm. okay but actually went out of his way to command uh, that people love their enemies and pray for them etc things like turning the cheek etc there is this impulse not to respond out of the normal human impulse that is central to Christian teaching uh, that we see in the New Testament uh, affirmed not just by Jesus, but really all the way through it in many ways, um, that introduces a – particularly in a world of fear. A a complicating element. Mm -hmm. I don't don't know how else to say it. It, it, uh, How do you do this? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you do this when you're at threat? What does it? What does it mean to be open to being martyred? Those kinds of questions. Of course, the early church um, reflected this and actually generated much sympathy for Mm -hmm. what it was that they believed because they didn't respond Mm -hmm. oftentimes in kind. Yeah. Yeah. The The innate default reaction Mm
2: -hmm. to fear um, is almost always to flee or fight. Mm -hmm. And both of those are Mm self-protective mechanisms when the, the Lord of the church teaches us a completely different way. That when he was faced with the greatest threat he had ever faced and had all the uh, the the ability at his disposal to flee as fast as he could or to fight it he laid down and died and he calls us he not only told us what to do in the Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. and, and the rest of his teaching he actually he showed,
1: showed us it. exactly and that
2: there's something about our response now whether that response is to the threat of violence at the at the end of a gun mm-hmm. or whether that response is to the threat of violent rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I think the Christian response is is not a response that is in kind, that violence is the default uh, is a default reaction throughout human history, it's the way of the world. It's the way of the world, mm-hmm. but we are not of the world. Right. So our response as Christians, must be a, a different response. And it's one thing to talk about that theoretically. It's one thing to talk about that in an air conditioning building Exactly right. when, when there's no gunman at the door, That's right. thankfully. Um, how, do we, how do we actually learn to do that? I, I'm going to argue that we learn how to do that as we interact with one another mm-hmm. Christians don't always agree either. Yes. And as we interact with with people of other religions and particularly atheists that that just because somebody ha- uses strong inflammatory rhetoric and uh, I mean so you hear Dawkins say things like God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic Cleanser, a misogynist, homophobe. This, you know, our, our immediate reaction, and I think it's a God-given reaction, is to be repulsed and be offended. But it, and it, it takes something of the mercy and grace and love. So it takes something of the work of the Spirit to realize that this is a man who is created in the image of God. This is a man for whom Christ died. And in reality, his rhetoric, his public rhetoric, is probably not much different. In kind, from the kind of private rhetoric that you and I would be prone to think. Mm-hmm. So, mate, you know, maybe we learn how to love our enemies, to love, um, to love people who 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 are angry and and fearful, um, by actually loving those who are close
1: to us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that the the tone of this is important because and that doesn't mean that there aren't times to confront and be direct so Jesus was it. confrontive and directive but there's a discernment that's involved in here and there is a a wisdom I', I, I the the Proverb that leaps into my head immediately is, you know, answer a fool according to his wisdom. Don't answer a fool according to his wisdom. Now, what do I do? Uh, so you time know, to speak and, and a time, time to be not. Silent. Exactly right. Those <laughs> kinds of things, and, and I and I think that uh, in dealing with these kinds of questions, uh, figuring out how to engage well and faithfully and um, honestly. Uh, and directly but with a way that says my response is out of a desire to mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. as opposed to a desire to destroy yeah. is very very important yeah.
2: which that's a nice segue to my fifth problem uh-huh. mm-hmm. and that ministerially um, I'm concerned about the what appears to be a growing group of Theists of mm-hmm. Christians, who are who are now identifying themselves as done with the church, mm-hmm. or many who who would identify themselves as holding no religious conviction at all, mm-hmm. and that thankfully this is not a steady stream mm-hmm. of graduates of our seminary, mm-hmm. but I I do hear from uh, enough. To now have begun to see a pattern, and it's deeply troubling Mm -hmm. to me. Uh, uh, Graduates of the seminary, people who have professed faith in Christ and who have been in ministry, who reach a point for whatever reason I'm trying to think through the similarities of, of the stories that I keep hearing mm-hmm. and and one of the similarities that I keep hearing over and over again is that, that Christianity doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Now it's easy for us to say but what made you think it was all about you? What made you think yeah. it was but but really the stories are I hear I've been taught that this is the way God is, this is the way he acts. Where was he when when I was raped? Where was he when, when I lost my job? Where was he when the Christian organization that hired me treated me unjustly? Where, and so that, uh, that there is this growing group of people that are moving away from the faith, and some of, some of whom would even identify as no longer being believers of being atheists um, because of what, either what they've been taught about God that wasn't true, or they've been taught that God always acts this way mm-hmm. and they found out that he doesn't, or just the harsh reality of life in a fallen world, the the, the real struggle for them, and, and the way we respond to them has got to be compassionate and loving and I, I do a lot more listening than talking when one of those is in my office
1: well uh, Glenn we're coming up to the end of our time unfortunately and I feel like all we've done is kind of a part one um, that that um, that we've kind of laid out the the problem and the issues and and tried to make a point that these are real that that Christians have to take them seriously and have to engage seriously not be dismissive and not be cold not be harsh not be Violent. There are lots of things not to do, right, right. but the flip side of this mm-hmm. is the question: Well, then, what do you do? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the tone, but the actual practicalities yeah. of what that means. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you back, <laughs> and we're going to talk on the uh, uh, on in a separate segment, and we're going to concentrate on how to deal with the challenge of what new atheism is, because I think one of the mistakes that can be made is we can treat it as something that can be easily dismissed mm-hmm. when it's clear from the way people. Reacting, that that's not how to handle it. So, I thank you for coming in, and I thank you for being a part of the table today. And we look forward to having you back with us when we finish our conversation on atheism.
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu/the table. Dallas Theological Seminary: Teach Truth, Love Well.